welcome to the Advance Your Art podcast, where we talk about the journey from artist to entrepreneur and everything in between. You've worked hard to hone your craft. Now take it to the next level with tips, techniques, strategies, and routines used by successful artists to grow their businesses and careers. Now, let's get started and have some fun with your host, Yuri Cataldo. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Hey, Yuri, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well, in spite of the circumstances. Where are you calling us from? Nice. I'm calling in from Richmond, Virginia, and I agree, despite circumstances, all is well here. Yeah. And I'm glad to hear everything's going well for you. Thank you. Thank you. And um, Mm -hmm. how, so how have things been in general in Richmond these last few months? Yeah, gosh, it's been it's been crazy. I remember the day that I tried to meet someone at a Starbucks and I couldn't because there's a sign on the door saying, "Hey, we're closed." You know, so for a little bit of time it kind of was like a ghost town here. Yeah. And that was that was very um surreal. And I think right now Richmond as a whole, we've hunkered down for about a month and a half and now everyone's starting to come back out and I went kayaking last week and there are people out on the lake. And so it's starting to come alive again, but it is something I never expected. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's, that's safe to say that's pretty much, I think everywhere where, where yeah. people didn't necessarily expect this, but yeah, it's been fairly drastic, but it's good that yeah. things are on the up and up down there. Yeah. So, so for the my listeners who are less familiar with what you do, how do you describe yourself and what you do? Yeah, great question. So I am formerly a classical ballerina, danced professionally for five years, and I made a pivot back in 2017 to go into social entrepreneurship. And so I do have a corporate gig that takes care of me and pays my bills as my business has been building. And that business now has grown very well and we're starting to expand and move into a point of being able to coach and mentor other young entrepreneurs as well. So I would say I describe myself as a ballerina entrepreneur. (laughs) That's wonderful. Well, all right, well, let's let's dig into that. What first got you interested in dance? Oh, this is a hilarious story. Are you ready? I am. I had trained in gymnastics my whole life and I broke my second bone and my mother banned me from taking any more gymnastics. And so I needed something to do. And my friend invited me to a dance class. (laughs) Isn't that great? (laughs) It is. That's great. How how old were you when you then attended this dance class? Yes, I was quite, I was a lot older than most professional dancers. I was 10. Okay. And I think I came in with a lot of flexibility from gymnastics, so I was able to jump in and take off. But at the same time, it's a very different age range. Most dancers start when they're quite young. Mm-hmm. I, I love that we're talking about 10 being old in this industry. Okay, so you are the, the ancient age <laughs> of 10. Um, yes. And so what was that like starting such an, as an old age as a dancer? And, and how did your career progress after that? 
Yeah, great question. So I think being older, my I could pick up things more quickly, perhaps, than the other girls in beginning ballet classes, but it also did not give me the same time that other dancers had had in that foundational putting down the basis of their their technique. And so I would say it was a big, a huge plus because I scaled through the levels very quickly. Mm-hmm. And then I scaled from beginning all the way up to level three. And then I plateaued at level three because I had a bunch of gaps in my foundation. And so I took the next two and a half to three years to be in that level and stayed there and worked on building the right foundation before progressing up to the top of the Mm-hmm. So I'm less familiar with with the levels. So could you just describe yeah. briefly what does what, what what does level three mean and and how do these okay. levels progress? And what sorry what school were you studying at if you don't mind? Sure, I studied up in Michigan, and so it was the school called Turning Point School of Dance. It's now run by a very different director, but when I was working there, my director was Lara and Richard Fershay. And they had trained classically with Grand Rapids Ballet and Ballet Magnificat, and then came and started school together once they got married. Right. And so the levels are going to be different for each and every studio. And so for the studio that there was beginning ballet all the way up through level six. And so level three would be that halfway point in the pre-professional career. Okay. But I fall in love with ballet. I, I would say I'm a perfectionist at heart. I work to... I work to get rid of the bad side of perfectionism, but keep the drive and love for pursuing excellence. And I love ballet because it was one thing I had to keep working at. Mm-hmm. Like I couldn't just win or lose. There was always more. I could always refine my craft more. Mm-hmm. I could always build more. I could always grow. There was no ceiling. I could always become better. Yeah. So that's why I fell in love with it. Oh, good. What was it like being uh, a dancer while going to school? So whether it be high school or I'm, I'm not sure how your dancing career overlapped with your college career, but at least high school wise, how, what was that like? Sure. Um, for me, it was a gift. Um, I came from a very hard driving classical Midwestern family that's very traditional. The expectation is all A's. And so there was a there's a lot of stress in school. And I I didn't necessarily love it. I could perform and get the A's, but I didn't love it. And so to be able to have a creative outlet was my sanctuary. Mm-hmm. So Someone might see my schedule in high school. She got up at six, went to school by 7.30, was home by 2.30, did school, got uh, some dinner and homework done, and then went to the dance studio at four and stayed till nine, 9.30. A lot of people would be overwhelmed by that, but I didn't see it as work. It was my outlet from four to 9.30. Mm-hmm. And then I had to come home and do homework right till midnight. But um it was my safe place. Yeah. The studio became my safe place. Well, it's wonderful. So how long did your dance career last? Yeah. So I did do a year of traditional college. Um, I went on scholarship to a liberal arts university, both for academics and for dance. But I just transparently 
realized that I was not going to continue the academic route. Mm-hmm. I could get paid as a dancer right away. And so at 19 is when I stepped into being self-employed and started freelancing for contracts and contracted all the way up to about, I think I was 24 years old when I had the injury. And so, yeah, contracted and was a professional for five years. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. Okay, so so for 19 to 24, um, so what was that like? Was there, were you ever, was there a particular, let's say, dance company that you were part of? Did you travel around? What was your schedule and, and your, um, yeah, what was that like for you? Great question. I I specifically chose a niche that I I don't know how many people choose, and that is nonprofit dance. And it makes you think, what is that, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yes. What is nonprofit yeah. dance? Well, nonprofit dance combines my heart for impact and my love for the art. But what it looks like on a day-to-day is just like any other dance company. You come mm-hmm. into the studio, you take a warm-up class to get your body ready, and then you rehearse the pieces you're putting together. I'd say the biggest difference is that, yes, we did ticketed shows that were in theaters, but we also did shows that we took into the community. And so we did both. We had commercial shows and we had dance that we, I guess, pro bono or gifted into the community. And that looked like going into juvie, working with the girls in juvie. That looked like going into prisons and being a part of a um, like recreational section for them or going into schools and performing and bringing arts and culture into schools, going into nursing homes. And so it was a very well-rounded experience, but I loved the fact that I was able to take five years of my life, combine two passions for impact and creativeness and art and the, the ability to express and create beauty. Combine that all together and do it in a way and giving a gift into lower income populations that could never receive it. That is, that sounds wonderful. It's, um, so what, so you said you got injured at 24. What happened? Yeah, so I was performing actually in so a ticketed production. So I was on a stage and I was kicked in the head. And so that led to a pretty severe concussion traumatic brain injury. They weren't quite sure where to draw the line, but mm-hmm. the recovery time for that was 18 months. And I definitely went from athlete, living on my own, being self-employed, to having to back in with my parents, allow them to take care of me in my mid-20s, mm-hmm. um, let go of my ego, because I, I couldn't do anything. I was in school at that time, working on a degree. I had to stop that. I had jobs and was working, had to stop that. Uh, There was no ability to do much more than heal. And so the next 18 months was a huge, huge, huge season of growing my character Mm -hmm. and learning what trial looks like and how you can use trial um, to be as much benefit and as much gain as good seasons. Yeah. There's a great quote by Napoleon Hill. I'm not sure if you know it, but this is the quote that got me through. And that, that within every adversity, there's a seed of equal or greater benefit for those with a positive mental mindset to actually harvest that seed. Mm-hmm. And so I was really, just frankly, upset with how the circumstances played out. I was so mad. And out of that 
anger and stubbornness, I was like, well, I'm going to find every last seed of benefit in this season. And what it became was a lot of character growth. Mm-hmm. So that's, so that's a long time, 18 months, particularly for somebody as driven as, as you. Yeah. With this character growth, what, so how did that look like? Were you, was it, you know, um, joining different groups? Was it reading a lot? What were, what were some of the things that really helped you uh, resource wise? Yeah. So transparently there was not much I could do. I couldn't read. Okay. Um, I wasn't able to write and I, I wasn't able to speak either. So those parts of my brain were damaged. Oh, wow. But how long, sorry, how, how long were you <laughs> unable to, to speak or read? Uh, about eight months. Okay. So a traditional recovery time is six months. We had some complications and so I was around eight months. But I, I remember the day vividly that I was able to read again and um I'm a person of faith and my faith is so important to me and to not have been able to read the Bible mm-hmm. when that was part of my daily life for my whole twenty four years and not being able to read it again um for eight months. That was so hard and I sat there for hours. I truly sat there for hours and just read and read and read and read and read the day that I could finally read again. But um, to answer your original question, how did I grow my character? Um, The only part of my brain that was not damaged was the auditory system. And so I could listen. And so I downloaded podcast after podcast after podcast. I listened to books on tape, audible books, anything that I could get my hands on. Um, Just prior to the injury, I gained some incredible favor with a philanthropist in a city nearby me here in Virginia. And she had started helping me understand what it was going to look like to create a great life where I could impact the way I wanted to. And one of her recommendations was to consume a lot of leadership and personal development content. And so the content I was consuming were books like um, books by Dale Carnegie, books by Tony Robbins, books by John Maxwell, um, podcasts that the philanthropist Sajel and her husband had recorded and I had gotten access to. But anything that was going to build a good mindset into me, that's what I was consuming. So that's how I spent the next 18 months. And I think... You know, the the greatest part of listening is in the application, right? 10% of what we take in is going to help us, but the 90% gain of anything that we read or listen comes from applying it. And so for me, it was really different to not apply these success principles to a pursuit or a goal of building a business or of achieving something, but rather apply these principles to the healing journey. Like, what do I do when my body is so overwhelmed that it can't figure out how to process it? Do I get upset or do I practice emotional stability? You know, and so it was a really unique way to start my journey into building a lot of leadership and success mindset into me. But it was a gift because that's all I could do for 18 months. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Okay. So, okay. So after the 18 months, you emerged. Um, let's say better, Uh, what did you do next? Yeah, so I think the cool part of my story is 
it wasn't just better, but a hundred percent completely everything that was damaged, a hundred percent restored. Great. Yeah. So I, at that point, I had previously gained favor with the philanthropist I shared with you about Siegel. Mm -hmm. And so I knew that I wanted to move down permanently to Virginia to learn from her on a very close basis. I had gained access into her mentorship program and was in a one-on-one coaching relationship with her at the time of the injury. And I had started making the pivot out of dance Mm -hmm. prior to getting injured. So for me, the only thing was to start what I finished. And to move back down because that journey of being able to create wealth and build wealth for yourself to position you as a philanthropist, that's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be a five to 10 year journey. And so I'm a finisher. And then there is no question in my mind, well, what do I want to do? I'm going to move back down to Virginia and finish what I started. Mm -hmm. I moved down, got a corporate gig and do marketing and, you know, take care of myself that way. And then I've been learning from her ever since. Yeah. So on the on the corporate side, why what was it about marketing that attracted you to go into that area? Would you like an honest answer? Yes, I would. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was the highest paid uh, gig I could get without a college degree. <laughs> well, there you go. Okay. <laughs> um, I think something that uh, I didn't realize as an artist was that we have an incredible skill set to market ourselves. That's how we survive as artists. We know how to turn contracts. We know how to network. We know how to secure gigs. And you're doing it all the time because I had a new contract I had to work on every, what, three to nine months. I had Mm -hmm. to go network and find a new contract. And so it was really natural to go into sales. And then the corporate sector I really appreciated the art that I was able to bring in and the creative perspective. And that's what led into a marketing um, and more of a strategic marketing niche. Gotcha. Gotcha. Good to know. Okay. So you, you, you've talked a bit about your journey and, and what your, your focus is on moving forward in, in the philanthropy section. So what is it particularly that the, the type of organization you've decided to build and create and, and what has that journey been like for you? Yeah, so something I've appreciated about Sejal is that she was willing to teach me the business. So I had zero business acumen, um, but she and her husband had taken the first 10 years of their life, so from 20 to 30, to build their wealth building e-commerce businesses. And so I've simply learned both X's and O's of mechanics of how to build e-commerce businesses and build them well, as well as the mindset and the thought process of what it takes to build, to scale, and then to create a long-term profit and a sustainable income coming off of the stores. So it's nothing, it's nothing sexy. It's nothing like over the top. Um, it's not cool products. Like it's nothing monumental. It's very basic. It's in the consumption industry. You have consumable goods. And what has been so cool is as COVID-19 has hit, mm-hmm. the strategy to work in a very baseline industry, right? Consumption-based e-commerce stores. Guess what? That's exactly what everyone needs in both good times and bad times. It's recession-proof. Yeah. And so I didn't see COVID-19 coming, not at all, but Sejal and her husband had weathered a couple storms already. And so they knew 
they knew a lot more than I did. And I'm really glad I followed suit and just learned exactly what they did. I've followed suit and all things are going really well, actually. Yeah. Well, that's good. So when you say consumption e-commerce stores, is there, could you tell me a little bit more about that? Like what specifically are you, are you looking in? What, what do you build to make sure that what you're doing is like different from like an Amazon? Yeah, great question. Well, I think that you take a look at the market outside of the Amazon and that's everyone else, right? Mm-hmm. And they mostly are brick and mortar or they're privately held and they don't actually have a storefront. All of these people want business online. Mm-hmm. And so the, we have 80 different contracts and 80 different partners that we support and we help drive traffic from what normally goes in stores and moves it online. Gotcha. And so in that process, there's a bit of equity that gets freed up and a lot of companies prior to COVID-19, they needed to help. Mm-hmm. They like our storefront traffic's amazing, but not online. And I think what's so interesting is our world right now has completely flip-flopped. Now everyone's online. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. So the revenue has gone very, very, very well. Okay. Less months good yeah but it's a black swan event right no one saw this coming <laughs> right exactly uh but it's great that that the business you're in is because is surviving this so what is the the long-term goal with this um because what's interesting is when i interview people about let's say companies that they have started they are quick to talk about the the name of it and the mm-hmm. like the products are selling and you you are you've gone a different way which i think is very interesting and in that you've just yeah. kept it kept it very general which makes me think that beyond whatever it is you're building that's not the long term goal so what yeah. is the long term goal for you that is an excellent question and you're you're absolutely right um the long term goal is not hey, I'm Kristen, I have an e-commerce business. Um, Sajal and her husband have done very well at teaching me how to build and create sustainable revenue that'll be a pipeline for me instead of just a, like, I guess you could call it um, client-based business, where it's all about getting more clients and then you have to keep client management. And so when you start to set up and scale and build a business, that has a very simple concept and you scale it large, then you have more, they would call it like a residual or past form of income coming off of it where you then just manage. And so for me, the goal has never been to label or brand myself inside of the e-commerce world as the e-commerce girl, but rather to brand myself as a philanthropist or a social entrepreneur because that's why I'm in business. I've never desired to be super overly wealthy or have a bunch of money or have a corporate title. I've never been that person. Honestly, in high school, I was very content with the strategy of, okay, I'm going to dance for a while and then I'll go overseas and work on third world countries and be over there and working hand in hand, impacting in the community. Not how the plan laid out. I realized a really important factor. To have impact, you need income. It's that simple. And so this is plan B. This is figuring out what does impact look like? And that is my brand is impact. Um, 
And so far, my dad has a company as well, and they have this term that they're about ROIs, but it's not return on investment. It's ripples of influence. Mm. And so it's a very family-driven um, part to be able to come and to leave this world a better place than I found it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, working in nonprofits, working in a nonprofit that I loved and was passionate about, it was beautiful. I loved what I did, but there was not the income that was needed to be able to impact with. I remember very specifically waiting three months for $500 of funding to be able to launch a program, a dance program with these girls in juvie. Mm-hmm. I, that was one of the final straws. Yeah, I'm like, there has to be a better way. There has to be a better solution than waiting on a donor. So I think when the door opened to learn from Sigil, it was this crossroads for me of, okay, do I learn how to get really good at fundraising? Or do I learn how to build something that is passive in nature and residual in nature that it's going to take five to 10 years out of directly impacting people. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a sacrifice on the front end, but on the back end, I can go wherever I want, serve whoever I want, help whoever I need to. And I have both time and capital to do so just like I see Sajel's life, you know? And so it's a very outside of the box, but that is why. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So head down, just do the work, make it happen. And I think what's been fun is moving, moving into a space of also being able to build a coaching program of my own and a mentorship program of my own, like I've watched Sage will do. Mm-hmm. That now that there's success on the tree as far as what I've done, Sage has also helped me learn, okay. You know, another way to impact for my life has been not just helping the needy, but also coaching and working with leaders, emerging leaders, emerging entrepreneurs that have a huge vision, a vision of impact. That's probably the key, like number one thing I look for is I want to partner and work with and mentor and coach up someone that has a vision for impact, but has not found it through nonprofits or traditional means and is trying to figure out the social entrepreneurship journey. So that has been fun to start that this year. And we are working with 10 different people right now. Um, One client is in France. And so that has been so much fun to work with Paris and work over in the European market. Um, But yeah, we have 10 people we're coaching right now. And that has been a joy to start this year. Yeah, great. So what does that coaching program look like? So I guess first let's start with how do, how do people f- join your coaching program? And then what is the process like throughout the, the program? Yeah, great question. So I have at this past year, keeping it referral basis. Mm-hmm. I believe trust is huge and that's the foundation of any partnership relationship, mentor, mentee. And so it's been all referral based the last year, um, starting to actually build into the Facebook marketing world and build out a handful of different, um, they're called challenges, where it'll be almost um, like a taste and see of, okay, so what is being coached by Kristen? What does that look like, feel like, taste like for the 
five days of the challenge and that is in the works so keep a look out for that coming soon but i'm working with his, the gentleman's name is pedro adeo he is the challenge guy is what they call him but he's one of he is the most effective person in the marketing community right now that understands how to use online challenges to convert your leads into new clients but as far as what it looks like right now this present moment i take a good three to four weeks to interview someone i'm very very selective with who i'll work with um, i understand the journey to build something to build an e-commerce business up to a residual point it takes a lot of grit it takes a level of emotional resiliency it takes someone that has very stable finances already someone that has a very strong vision for why they would want to build something that is passive in nature and someone that has the ability to finish what they start and i can't tell that from an interview i can't tell that from an online application i can't tell that from just anything less than testing it and so i test someone's character for those four weeks while also giving them a crash course of how do you build an e-commerce based business what is our approach who are the partners we work with how do the companies come together what's the timeline what's the work it's going to take so for the person i'm interviewing they get four weeks of education for me i get four weeks to test out someone's character and at that point then i'll decide if i want to partner with them and help them build and scale a business or not interesting okay so so you've mentioned grand rapids a couple of times um yes how so I'm, I'm very familiar with grand rapids i, I grew up uh, a little bit home. south of there um yeah and actually oh. it was like what 12 wait where years? did you grow up i grew up in south bend indiana so i spent a lot of time in my teens and 20s hanging out in mostly kalamazoo but then going further up in in grand rapids and around there um, oh my goodness particularly so around where my yeah. grandparents lived and so oh, yeah. we'd go there all the time to visit grandma yeah i love world. bell's brewery um yeah <laughs> my early 20s were around kind of breweries up and down so it was like between founders and and uh, and bells um but yeah i had a lot of friends in kalamazoo so yeah wait if you know michigan do you know holland michigan where mm -hmm. i okay so I say Grand Rapids because most people would know that point on a map, but Holland is where I'm from. Oh, okay. So I grew yeah. Up on the okay. Yeah. 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 So I, um, wow. yeah. because so I used to go to St. Joe and then you go up or up, up the lake to usually Holland and then kind of swing back around. But um, yeah, New Buffalo, St. <laughs> Joe, that's great. Um, wow. Oh, I mean, technically I grew up in Elkhart, Indiana, which is right next door to South Bend. But unless you're in the RV world, you don't know what Elkhart is. <laughs> everybody has a tent knows what South Bend is, particularly because of um, Pete Buttigieg, who recently ran for the, the presidency. So, so yeah, so wow. good, good okay. to know. Crazy. Yeah. What a small world. Yeah, the Midwest is very different than, I know you're in New England right now, right? Yes. And I'm in Virginia. The Midwest is very different. We escaped. <laughs> we did. We did. Well, so that's that's where my, my question comes from. I'm I'm curious on your Midwestern upbringing and whether or not you how it has affected where you're what you're currently doing now and your current outlook. Um, for one, you know, for for good or bad, either way. But how has 
the Midwest, I guess, kind of changed and adapted how you view things, particularly now that you're on the East Coast? Yeah, great question. Um, I would say I definitely felt like a black sheep growing up in the Midwest. I am not your traditional Midwesterner. Mm-hmm. So um, I think a lot of people, if they are not familiar with the Midwest, there is a large community of very good, honest, hardworking people, but they are workhorses. All they know how to do is work. And, you know, I think one of the secrets of business is how do you work smart, not just work hard. Work Mm -hmm. ethic is important, but how do you work smart? And so I would say benefits of the Midwest, I absolutely have this hard-bred, in-wired, get-the-job-done, work-until-it's-done, just like, yes, there's nothing else to do up there. It snows all the time. You work. So I'm very familiar with that grind, but I also have come to realize that the Midwestern culture is just honest. They're honest people. They're genuine. They're authentic. They are just I guess really I'm searching for a better word, but the word is honest. Mm -hmm. They are very candid. They are very authentic with their kindness and they are authentic with their rudeness. They are authentically who they are. And so if I think sometimes as I've lived down South, there's a little bit of Southern charm and um, maybe a bit more hospitality and you almost have to like vet someone to see, okay, is that authentic? But in the Midwest, we're just authentic people. It's why my parents still walk around with very light colored straight legged jeans and New Balance white tennis shoes. We're just authentic. It's not about saving face or showing the designer. I didn't even know what a designer bag was until I lived in one of the big cities. I had no clue what a designer bag was. We just got our stuff from Target. We're very humble grounded people. I think that would be the strength that I've taken is that authenticity from the Midwest. Um, I think the probably challenge has been learning. You can't just work hard. You have to work smart. Yeah. Um, I didn't already. I already was different than the Midwest. Stay in one place. Stay in your comfort zone. Don't do anything outside of the box. I was already very different from that. I love to achieve. I love to see what's possible. If it, if I can jump this high, being a five foot three human, I'm going to jump that high. If someone can jump higher than me, I'm going to jump higher than them. Like, I just love to achieve and see what's mm-hmm. possible. So I did not get stuck in the day-to-day, oh, my goodness, blah, 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 of life. But I, I absolutely did get trapped and work hard. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not the solution. You have to work smart. Yeah. Good. So talk to me about fear and how you've overcome it. I mean, I mean, obviously your, your journey is, is one with ups and downs, um, particularly with, again, with debilitating injuries. So how mm-hmm. throughout your life have you approached times that you were fearful and how have you gone over those? You do it afraid. It is literally that simple. Um, and that's something Sajel taught me. You know, when I was moving back down from Michigan 
to be able to live down in Virginia full-time after the injury, I think something that maybe people don't realize is I didn't do anything like a normal adult would have to be responsible for mm-hmm. for 18 months. I had not done grocery shopping. I had not had to fill up my car with gas. I had not had to manage any of the adult responsibilities for 18 months because my whole responsibility was to heal then. So when I came down to Virginia, the level of fear of am I going to be healed enough to just do normal human adult things was so real. It's just as real as the fear I felt with the last couple weeks of investing time learning from Pedro Adeo on how to do Facebook ads and click funnels and challenges, these fears of, am I going to be able to do it? Am I going to do it? What if I fail? What if I waste money? What if I don't succeed? What if um, no one wants it? No one wants my product. What if no one responds? Like, am I good enough? Mm -hmm. Like these fears are all consuming if I let them be. And I've simply had to learn not to. And I come, like if I, if you look at my roots, it's very fear-based. You know, there's a lot of people in my family, generations before me, that were bound by fear. Mm-hmm. And that's why you see their incredible art that they did hanging up in my grandma's house, not on display in a bunch of millions of people's houses. It's not that my family line was without talent. It's just, I don't, I haven't seen very many of them master fear. And so that was the first thing Sajal worked with me on was, Kristen, if you feel fear, do it afraid. You take 10 seconds of courage and you choose to put yourself in action and you go. Mm -hmm. You only need to be unafraid for 10 seconds. Choose courage and then get moving because fear is self-evident appearing real. We all feel it. Sagel in the prime of her life right now feels fear. The only two people, the only two categories of people that don't are toddlers and psychopaths. And neither of us are qualified. <laughs> so we all feel fear and to normalize that, mm-hmm. to make it normal. And the solution to fear is action. So that's how I handle it. Yeah, very cool. So with with everything that you have done and experienced in your life, what would you say has been the best advice that you've ever received? Awesome question. I have had, over the course of my whole life, people point me towards finding a mentor. And it's it's from my parents who, growing up, they knew what they could provide for me. They knew what they couldn't provide for me. They literally connected me with people that could mentor me. It was from my dance career that anytime I wanted to achieve and go forward and get better, I found someone that had the results and was willing to coach me. Mm -hmm. I paid them through the nose. And I did whatever I had to do. Like if I was looking to move forward towards a goal, the 
the actual vehicle that gets me from point A to point B is not a business opportunity, is not more work, is not more studying. It is finding someone that is at point B that is willing to come with you where you are at point A and help you move to point B. And I did the same thing in business. And I find it so interesting now that I am in more of the corporate setting as well. I, you know, half in half foot in the entrepreneurial space, half foot in the corporate space. I'm finding that that concept of pursuing someone that has results to learn under them is so foreign. It's like this doggy dog world in the corporate sector. And I'm I'm saddened by that. But I have consistently had this habit of just humbly going to the person that has results, finding if they'll let me sit at their feet and learn from them, and then apply everything that they say. And so I've lived and built my life on that principle of finding someone with results. And I don't mean results just in business, results in their personal life, results in financial picture results in their stress level i mean when you look at finding a mentor you want to look holistically and then doing and applying everything that they say even if it rubs you the wrong way because a lot of maybe perspective or coaching i've not liked when i first got in it because it called me out and i had to humble myself, evaluate, and realize, you know what? They only want the best for me. Why I hired them. So I'm going to humble myself, hear what they're saying, and see if there's any realness to it. And guess what? Every time there was. I'm so appreciative for the people in my life that have cared the most for me to tell me the hard truth and help me see blind spots because those are the blind spots that were holding me back. And I think that's the value of having, whether you call it a mentor, a coach, a older friend that can help guide you. I don't really care the label you put on it, but someone that is ahead of you, giving them access to speak into your life is the best advice I'll give because that'll take you where you want to go. Yeah, that's wonderful. Kristen, th thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. If the You're listeners, oh, of course, if the listeners would like to um, follow you more or, or um, see what you're up to online, where is the best place they can go for that? Okay, so right now it's going to be Instagram. I have a lot of fun. I like to just capture my life and, you know, let people see what is a day in Kristen's life look like. Mm -hmm. And so Instagram, I am at ballerina.entrepreneur. And maybe you can do some cool tech stuff and drop a link below. <laughs> I, uh, I always, so. do, you, you kind of beat me, beat me to the punch. So yes, I, I will, <laughs> I will drop a link so that listeners can click awesome. right through and then follow you on Instagram. Awesome. So that's wonderful. And we're building out a website right now. It's not finished yet, but once okay. that is, I'll make sure that that is in the bio. So even if people in the future are listening to this, go find me on Instagram, hit me up in the DM, say, hey, introduce yourself, tell me what your art is, tell me what you're excited about, what your vision is. And I just like to connect with people. 
Mm-hmm. I think authentic human connection is so rare. And that is one of the things that I love to do. And, you know, you never know where that leads. Yeah, that's very, very true. And uh, especially nowadays, it, it's uh, even more difficult to have some authentic connection. So that's fantastic. That's what you're looking for. Uh, great. So again, Kristen, thank you so much. Uh, this has been an absolute pleasure. Absolutely. You too. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Advance Your Hour podcast. If you like this episode, please go into iTunes and give us a five-star rating. And while you're there, hit the subscribe button so that every single time I release a new episode, it will go directly to you without even thinking about it. If you're interested in hearing older episodes, please go to AdvanceYourArt.com where you can find the catalog of everything I've done so far, as well as contact information and projects I'm working on. Thank you again, and have a great day.